What is the No Spin News all about? You know that this is a fact-based analysis news program. You know that. We avoid speculation. We don't do conspiracies here. We don't do party politics here. We're not nonpartisan. That's wrong. Not that. Okay, we are advocates for a stronger America and a more just society. We don't believe in communism. We don't believe in socialism. We don't believe in nihilism. We don't believe in the progressive woke culture. We think it is un-American. We don't support that. So you should know what we are. And it would then crystallize what we do. Listen to the No Spin News. Subscribe to Bill O'Reilly's podcast feed wherever podcasts are available. Well, good Tuesday to you. Welcome to the Sean Spicer Show. A lot to get to today. Lots happening in the world that we're going to break down. Coming up in a little bit, Governor Mike Huckabee. He's going to break down so much with us, including what it's like to win the Iowa caucuses, what it takes, who he thinks will prevail in just a couple months on January 15th. What about that second debate? He has been on the stage. He'll give his insight. Plus, are we ready for war with China? Because the Secretary of the Air Force says we better be getting ready. He thinks so. This comes on the heels of other senior national security officials telling us the same thing. But are we as a government, as a people, ready for we are about to see And is this administration doing what it can or is it continuing to play footsie with China? We're going to break that down. Plus, 9-11, if you watched the show yesterday, you know we took time to remember that fateful day, what it means today. Are we safer as a nation? What did the administration do? Well, the president of the United States was in Alaska and his national security spokesman tweeted about what a great day it was for Saudi Arabia. We have a lot to get to today. Plus, Congress. The House of Representatives is back in town to impeach, not to impeach, to fund or not to fund the government. So much to get to. The Sean Spicer Show starts right now. All right. Good Tuesday to you. A lot to break down, as I said. Um, President Biden facing some backlash for how he remembered 9-11. He was uh, in Alaska. This is the first time in 22 years since we were attacked on that day that a president hasn't participated in what they call a traditional ceremony at either the White House, the Pentagon, or New York, one of those sites, Shanksville. Vice president was up there um, in uh, New York. Uh, He was there in Alaska returning from the G20. My guess is that his staff thought that this would be just as appropriate. Um, I was talking about this with some folks today on several separate instances. And what I've come to realize is that if you can get away with stuff, you're going to get away with it. And this administration knows that they're not going to be held accountable for anything at all. A little later, I'll talk to you about what their national security spokesman put together as well. It is amazing, um, having been in the Trump administration, having served in the Bush administration, the lack of accountability is unreal. Um, And I think it is something that we need to call out. I've said it all along. Part of the reason that this show exists is to tell you what you're not getting. I, I just get appalled when I read stories in the morning or listen to the morning shows 
about what they are telling you. It's, it's like I said with Chuck Todd the other day. He signed off by saying that his job was to explain America to you or to Washington and Washington to America. That's not his job. And the problem is, is that when you're a partisan hack like Chuck and you believe that your job is to tell people what to think and believe and who's credible and who's not, that's the problem. And what we have been trying to do is find those stories, those individuals that are not getting their due, that have important information to share with you and bring that to you. We're going to continue to do it, especially through a presidential year, because you didn't hear a peep from any of these folks about the president breaking tradition because they know they can get away with it because they know they have a complicit press. But speaking of overseas, a big question is looming. It's something that you've heard me ask Ron Johnson and several of the guests about. I, I am obsessed with our preparedness to deal with China. China is growing more provocative. They are flying by our military assets, whether it's our ships in the South China Sea, whether it's coming close to drones. They are not our friend. And you hear the administration say words like, well, we should win-win and we want China to see the greater good. What, this is the problem. They don't understand what we're up against. China doesn't want to be our friend. They're not looking to be our roommate. They're not looking to share a Netflix password with us so we can be buddies with them. They, they believe we're our enemies. They want to dominate us militarily, economically. And we need to get through our heads of our elected officials. Instead, we can't even ban an app like TikTok, an app that's collecting data on every single American. We can't stop buying our PPE and our prescription drugs from after they send us a virus. And I was at least pleased to see the Secretary of the Air Force, Frank Kendall. He said this yesterday. Today, the intelligence couldn't be clearer. What his actual intentions may be, I could not say. But China is preparing for a war and specifically a war with the United States. Stop and think about that again. China is preparing for a war and specifically a war with the United States. Are we ready? Are we doing what it takes to deter and win? No. No, we're not. We're more focused on pronouns and everybody feeling good and getting a hug. We can't defend Taiwan. We can. Why do you think Ukraine matters? It's a proxy. China sitting there watching this thing happen. It is unbelievable where we have come that we can't even agree about the threat that China poses to us. Militarily, economically, manufacturing, our economy is so tied to the nothing that we can do right now. We can't get our drugs without going to China. They're sending us, by the way, fentanyl all the time. Where do you think that's originating? And we do nothing. The leaders sit back. We stop trying to get people from buying up land. These Chinese assets are buying up land around our military bases. We, some of these states have proactively done things to make sure that they can't do that anymore. And you know what happens? You get called racist. What are you kidding me? How many times do we have to get slapped in the face before we go, yeah, yeah maybe it's time that we get out of the way, went on offense. It is unbelievable what we've allowed to happen. And then here at home, you've got these activists occupying Speaker McCarthy's office. They, they took videos of it. They're proud of it. They sat in there 
That, that's how is that not interrupting? They weren't, that was trespassing. They get charged with misdemeanors and they'll all be let go either if they haven't been already. They'll be let go in the next like hour or two. They won't ever face any jail time. It's okay, right? Because it's the left. As long as you're doing it in favor of like climate change and all that, well, that's okay. Marched into the guy's office illegally, plopped themselves down, were told to leave, didn't. I mean, it is, it is pretty unbelievable what's happening. And I told you that the administration on 9-11, um, not only was the president not here, the national security spokesman got a ton of blowback, and rightly so, for sending out a tweet praising Saudi Arabia's commitment to Biden's international infrastructure on the anniversary of, of the um, 2001 attacks here that involved 15 Saudi hijackers. This is the spokesman for the National Security Council. How do you get away with that? I mean, didn't even take the tweet down. No backlash. I can't tell you the number of times that I got crushed for some minor little thing, spelling somebody's name wrong, saying that. And this, the spokesman for the National Security Council of all places puts out a tweet praising Saudi Arabia on the 22nd anniversary when 15 hijackers from Saudi Arabia came and killed 3,000 Americans and the President of the United States has broken tradition on the same day. And you know what blowback there is? Nothing. Nothing. But again, go back to what I said at the beginning. If you can get away with it, ah, who cares? If you can rob a bank, no one's going to stop you. Ah, that's what they feel like because no one in the press corps is offended by this stuff. And they support them. It just never stops. It never stops. By the way, we touched on the president's ongoing legal battles. And one of the things that we talked about with Alan Dershowitz was whether or not this prosecution in Fulton County, Georgia, which deals with these efforts to overturn the election, would stay in Georgia court or whether it would go to federal court because A, these are federal officials. Two, it's a federal election. Three, it crossed state lines because they were all in D.C. Well, Mark Meadows, the former president's chief of staff, was the first one to file this to try to get it. The judge has rejected that. So this is going to be interesting. Um, how this all plays out. Because President Trump, I assume, is going to want to equally do that as well. Um, we will have some further discussion on this in the next little while because it's unbelievable what's going on. And I think there's a lot of concern, not just with this case, but then when you look at the length of sentences, one of these guys the other day got 22 years, another one got 15. You look at what's happening around the country, the riots, the BLM riots, destroying federal property. They killed Captain David Dorn. The vandalism and all this, and, and you get, like most of these guys, and, and the, the media covers them calling them mostly peaceful protests. There is definitely a double standard of justice in this country right now. Who gets charged, who doesn't get charged? And we see it, whether it's the Trump stuff or 
the BLM versus the January 6th stuff. And these people are 22 years, 15 years, 11 years. These people who did this yesterday, they disrupted Congress. They trespassed. I mean, there's a list of charges that people are tweeting out, and yet they will all get slaps on the wrist and nothing happens to them. I'm Mike Slater from the podcast Politics by Faith. This is a crazy time in our country. It's stressful, a lot of anxiety, and it's going to get worse. And I realized that one of the things that helps me take away the stress is realizing that there's nothing new under the sun. So on this podcast, we take the news of the day and we run it through the Bible and other periods in history to realize that we've been through this before and we can rise above again. Politics by Faith, anywhere you listen to the podcast. Politics by Faith. We've got a great opportunity to sit down right now with Governor Mike Huckabee. Uh, governor Huckabee, as you know, was not only the governor of Arkansas, but he ran for president. He was on the debate stage. He won Iowa. He is perfectly situated to give us a great understanding of where we are politically right now. Governor Huckabee, thanks for joining us. Always great to see you. Well, great to be with you, Sean. Thank you for having me. So look, we had a lot happening in Washington. I want to get to uh, your wheelhouse debates and winning Iowa. Uh, but before we do that, there's a, two big things that I think are happening in Washington, the impeachment and the spending. Let's break them down one at a time. Um, where do you think this thing goes in terms of impeachment? Is it a good idea for Republicans to pursue this? And I say that trying to tap into your political experience, because one of the things that I've expressed on the show is I get why we want to do this. I get the tit for tat. I get they started it. But the reality is, is that if we don't prosecute the case correctly and have the votes and it costs us politically, it hands them potentially all of government for two years. I think it hands it to them for six. Uh, I, I believe it would be a disaster if we're not prepared. Now, the impeachment inquiry is a sound decision, and that's simply to uh, use the tools to get the information, to conduct an investigation that is thorough and that gives them subpoena power so that they can dig through the Biden corruption, these 20 shell companies, the tens of millions of dollars from foreign governments that have flown, flown uh, flowed rather into the Biden treasury. That's all legit to conduct an actual impeachment vote until they have won the hearts and minds of not just American people, but also some Democrat colleagues in the Senate, Sean, I think would be an absolute disaster. The worst thing they could do is let some of the House hotheads, and I, I look, I like these guys and I respect them, but some of them just can't wait to get an impeachment vote. And it's almost like they don't even understand what they're asking for. Because you may get what you want, but you won't want, end up wanting what you get. Right. And here's the problem. If you have an impeachment in the House and it goes to the Senate where it will die with less than five minutes time, then what you've done is you've given Joe Biden and all the Democrats an opportunity to say, see, it failed. Joe Biden is proven innocent. He's exonerated. And suddenly you have empowered him and you've made a lot of the American people angry at Republicans. We've seen two impeachments in the past 30 years, one with Bill Clinton, one with Donald Trump. Neither of them went anywhere in the Senate. And the net result was you strengthened Bill Clinton and you strengthened Donald Trump. And so what, what is attempting to be done is going to be a, a fool's errand if they don't simply say, we're going to conduct the inquiry, we're going to methodically get the facts, 
and then we will present them to the American people, but we won't do an impeachment vote unless there is consensus, not just among House Republicans, but among some Democrats, and also believing that the press at some point has to start reporting this. They can't ignore it forever. Yeah, I agree with you. I I think to take it one step further, I mean, the political consequences, redistricting alone is going to cost us seats in Alabama. Uh, The the court has to redraw those. Um, And you look at some of the New York members that are are here by a threat. If we screw this up and they win the House, to your point, you know, you're looking at potentially six years of a Biden progressive agenda that I think changes the country forever and can't be undone. And that's the thing that I don't think everyone gets is that once you do a lot of what they want to do, there's no unringing the bell. It it would be better for us to get the information out, stop short of an impeachment vote that doesn't go anywhere, but get the facts, present them repeatedly to the American people, make it impossible to ignore, and use it as the campaign platform of 2024. That has the uh, potential impact of derailing Joe Biden's second term uh, making it impossible for he and Kamala to to win the election because the facts will be out there. And you don't need a Senate vote. It's more important that we win the next election than we simply go through the ceremonial role of impeaching and even convicting Joe Biden and throwing him out of office. Quite frankly, throwing Joe Biden out of office before the election of 2024 means that any Democrat who has a pulse will be a better candidate than the one that they currently have. Why would we do that to ourselves? It makes no sense to me. Hey, this is Vivek Ramaswamy. The media has systematically lied to you. The Hunter Biden laptop story, the origin of COVID-19, the Trump-Russia collusion hoax, or how your money's being spent in Ukraine. Enough already with the lies. No more lies, hard truths only. That's what the Truth Podcast is all about. It's not standard conservative talking points. If you want that, go somewhere else. But if you want the hard truth delivered to you in a way that challenges you, and will challenge me intellectually, you're not gonna find anything like this on the internet. Subscribe to The Truth Podcast today on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. No, not, and I think you're absolutely right. I mean, my my view is we have an easier way than impeachment. It's called an election. And based on his record right now, I think, I mean, you can, his own party doesn't want him. Why give them a lifeline of something to rally around as opposed to saying, let them hang themselves right now. I agree with you. Let's build the case, make that part of the campaign but make Democrats who have been shielded from the facts of what he's done in the past to have to acknowledge some of the shady business dealings, uh, then, then give them something sympathetic to rally around. And your point on, on Clinton and Trump is exactly right. It's strengthened them politically. Well, and when you do that, you're going to put a lot of these House Democrats and Senate Democrats in a position where they're going to have to defend Joe Biden. Right. They're not going to want to do that. When, when it's been clearly established not just within the Republican caucus, but in the general mainstream of American thought that Joe Biden took millions of dollars from the Chinese, the Ukrainians, from Russian oligarchs. He put it in his pocket. This isn't about Hunter anymore. This is about Joe. Joe compromised his office as vice president and as president. He enriched himself off the money of foreign enemies And he didn't pay taxes on it. And he didn't file FARA reports on it. And it was a family enterprise. And he was involved. He has repeatedly lied about it. Now, ask a Senate Democrat who's campaigning for re-election to go and defend Joe Biden on that. Good luck. Uh, That's why I say that I hope we play this smart rather than play it passionately. 
I do worry that you've got some House members that, uh, you know, they're just so giddy about going after Joe Biden and getting on the floor and making speeches. Look, we got to play the long game, not the short game. And we need to play smart and not play reckless. And so nobody from the House uh, Freedom Caucus or anyone else has asked for my opinion on this, but I'm happy to share it with you. And if you want to pass <laughs> it on to them, I, I'm simply saying some of them are angry at Kevin McCarthy because he hasn't just gone out to the to the range, loaded the gun and started shooting. Quite frankly, I'm grateful that he's taking his time and he's being far more cautious and methodical. We need to win the elections of 2024. That's job one. And whatever it takes to do that, uh, that's that's the critical thing, because if the Biden administration continues weaponizing the DOJ and the FBI, continually criminalizing the free speech of pro-life conservative people, uh, then it it honestly doesn't matter whether Joe gets impeached or not, because we lose the big game in a big way. Yeah. I, I mean, if we lose the House representatives, there's nothing. I mean, they go completely unchecked. There is no oversight. Uh, there's no stopping the agenda. I do want to move to, to spending because that one, here's what I don't understand. And I, I've, I've said this to the audience before. I've been doing this 30 years. I don't want to sound like I'm naive. But at some point, these guys pass the debt ceiling increase. And I get it. I, I understand the, the economic consequences of not doing that. But the deal was sort of then let's make the fight about appropriations. There seems to be and, and again, I'll put the blame on Republicans here. Why isn't there, do you think, a better case about the, the excesses of government in terms of spending, the growth of bureaucracy? There's no examples, right? Meaning that right now we're fighting over top line numbers. Those don't mean anything to most Americans because you don't know the underlying how much does this department cost? How much are we spending here? But the point that I've tried to make to several lawmakers over the last few months is find examples of wasteful spending and say, do you, you know, you made this case about the impeachment, put this to, to Democrats and say, do you guys believe that this program from 1828 that funds a da, 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 da is still relevant today? Because that's, you're charging a taxpayer, you know, to essentially continue that function of government. We're not making, I don't think a good enough case about where we go with spending. And right now we're careening towards a government shutdown. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, make the Democrats defend the manner in which they're spending our money. Make them defend it. Far too long, Republicans play defense, and it's almost like they don't understand. You know, we're supposed to get the ball, too. We're supposed to have an offensive game, not just a defensive game. Right. No team wins football if all you do is have a great defense. You might end up with a scoreless tie. But you have to have an offense and put points on the board or you don't win. And sometimes Republicans say, man, we're great defenders. I'm sorry. Get the ball, take it down the field and score. And you do that by making the Democrats play defense and helping the, the American people to understand how their money is being spent. And people will be outraged, helping them understand what the, the debt and the deficit do to their families food budget and gasoline budget and education budget. Um, those are the kind of things that Republicans have to do. And, you know, when people say, oh, we could have a shutdown, you know, there's worse things that might happen. And that is that we just let government continue to spend us into oblivion. I may not live long enough to see the full impact of that, but my children and my grandchildren will. Right. And if I have any respect for them and their future, I should be saying to the Republicans, 
guys, I, I don't want to see a shutdown. I hope you can avoid it. But even more, I don't want to see the U.S. government uh, spend itself into oblivion and collapse from within. We saw what happened when the Soviet Union did that, and they fell completely, and all of Eastern Europe fell with them uh, because they couldn't keep up with the spending that they had committed themselves to. That's where we are as a country, and we'd better start speaking out to the American people that way. So, but, but this gets back to the point that I was trying to make, which is I feel like we're in a bind now. We've got less than 20 days. Um, or the government shuts down. And everyone says, I don't want a government shutdown. And it seems like there's this binary choice between funding the government at certain levels or shutting the government down. I feel like we've waited to the last second again, whereas we could yeah. have used the last 11 months to, to say, start weeding out some of this ridiculous spending and inefficiency in government. That being said, and I know this is a tough thing, but to the extent that members of Congress have an option, what, what do you think it is? I mean, because I feel like they're being, it's a false choice. It's like, well, you either fund the government at these higher levels or you let it shut down. I, I don't know. I mean, I get we don't have a ton of time, but I don't think that that's the only answer. Well, Sean, you and I, I think both know the real reason that this is uh, coming down to the final moments. And that is because Republicans, for the most part, they like to spend money almost as yep. much as Democrats. <laughs> and that's just the hard, unvarnished truth. So they have pet projects and they have things in their districts uh, that they don't want to give up. And it's um, a lot of deal making, uh, some of which I understand. That's how the process works. But let's not kid ourselves. The reason that Republicans ultimately make these last minute deals and keep the spending levels up is because they want to spend money on the projects that are important to them. And so it's not about the principle of a solvent, responsible U.S. government in the way it raises money and spends money. It's how can I be reelected? And one of the ways is I take good care of my donor buddies and I take good care of those who I think will vote for me if I give them largesse out of the Treasury. And so I wish that there was a moment at which Republicans just said, I'm not going to vote for this. It's uh, there's too much lard. Uh, you know, in the in the pot. And yeah, we want to fry the chicken, but we we don't want to taste nothing but the grease. So we're just going to say no. And but, I don't but, know. If so let, let's get back to what I was asking. I just I don't I don't see. I mean, if I had a crystal ball right now, I'd say we're shutting down. I mean, October one, I don't see a solution. I don't I just don't see it. There's a there's five or six of these guys. The thing that people don't really understand about the math right now on the Republican side, everyone says they have a five seat majority. They don't. For health reasons, we're about to see Chris Stewart in Utah step down. Uh, we haven't, right, there's, and, and so we'll lose another member. He doesn't have the same four or five votes that he had to become speaker. This is down to a, you know, one or two vote margin. And I don't see enough votes to keep the government going. And, and it, so unless I'm wrong, I think we're, we're headed for at least a month or so of, of government shutdown. I think you're right. I, I think we probably will. Uh, I remember when it happened before and everyone thought the world would come to an end. Newt Gingrich was speaker at that time. And um, quite frankly, it it hurt Republicans more than it hurt Democrats because uh, the president at that time, Bill Clinton, was able to lay the blame at the feet of uh, Newt Gingrich. And people accepted that. You know, there's one chief executive. There's 535 members of Congress. So it's easy to dilute the impact uh, or the strength of members of Congress. Uh, 
So the chief executive typically wins the battle when it comes down to that. Now, the only way we might win is that Joe Biden is so incompetent to explain it, uh, as is Kamala Harris, that maybe by default we we are able to articulate it uh, better. But it, it's a tough sell. But I, I, with you, I think we will end up shutting it down. I don't know for how long. You know, I uh, just, just game so, of chicken. I mean, that's what it really comes yeah. down to. Let me ask you this. This is totally off topic. What scares you more, four more years of Joe Biden or two or four years of Kamala Harris? Uh, both are <laughs> frightening. Yeah. But I think uh, the idea of four more years of Joe Biden, because at that point, we are clearly being led by people that we don't see. Right. Joe Biden is not making day-to-day decisions. He is agreeing to, I'm not sure if he realizes all that he's agreeing to, but he's bought in on it. Uh, but it's not necessarily his agenda. But the agenda that we have is, is to completely become a police state and to criminalize the activities and even the speech of anyone who is conservative, Republican, pro-life, pro-Christian, pro-biblical um, view of gender and marriage And when you have that, you basically have told 50% of the country, we may be knocking at your door, uh, searching your home, taking you to uh, court and putting you in prison because you believe things that we don't believe that you have a right to believe. And certainly you don't have a right to say it. Yeah. So you can no longer be a free person. You are a criminal and we're going to treat you like one. That, Sean, that's frightening. And when you take away the ability of people to even manage their own bank accounts or to use certain credit cards or to buy certain things uh, because somebody has decided that what you want to purchase is not politically correct. It's not woke enough. I mean, we at that point, we are a totalitarian state. We're a police state. And I I shudder when I think of the implications of that. Yeah. Uh, Let me move on to we're we're about two weeks away from the next debate. Tell me what you thought of the first one and what do you think I'm sort of I keep having this question about whether these debates are moving the needle, especially if Donald Trump's not there. So what are your impressions of the first one? What do you think about the impact the second one might have, if any? There were mild implications from the first debate in which a couple of candidates, I think particularly uh, Nikki Haley, maybe Vivek Ramaswamy, did themselves some good. DeSantis didn't move the needle one way or the other. I think he pretty much uh, didn't hurt himself, but he didn't really help himself uh, look, my bigger problem is I think the debates are a farce. I think yeah. they're a total disaster. I went to Chicago, appeared before the RNC debate committee. I shared with them as a person who's gone through two cycles of presidential debates that I think they need to take the debates away from TV networks. We're not interested. Yes. No, I, they, yes. I do, Sean. Take it away from them. Yes. Turn it into a game show. And what did they and say? Is have well, they they in principle agreed, so they said, but then they kept it that way anyway. And I said, guys, you need you're, you're being played. Yes. You're being played because I've also, in addition to being on the debate stage, I've worked at the networks, and I understand they're playing this for ratings and revenue. They don't give a rip how the debates really help or hurt the Republican Party candidates. They're going to do one thing: try to create a controversial environment that ultimately hurts Republicans, not helps. And here's, let me give you some specifics. When an anchor spends two and a half minutes asking a complex question and then says to the person who actually had the guts to run, you have 30 seconds to answer. That's nonsense. And when the 
moderators in the network control the clock. And so somebody that is willing to come out and say really controversial or confrontational things ends up getting most of the clock and people with substantive things don't get any time because they're not uh, boosting the ratings with controversy. See, I think everybody, and this is what I said you should do. First of all, don't have A and B tiers and don't put people on the stage according to where they poll. Everybody draws a position out of a hat before the debate. They don't know where they're going to be on the stage. And if you do have enough candidates that you have to do two stages, you don't have a, a, a so-called B table, the kitty table, as it's called, because that's a, that that's, means it's over for those candidates. And then what you do, you give everybody exactly the same amount of time. Maybe it's 10 minutes per person. And when you speak, your clock runs. And at the end of 10 minutes, wherever you are, if it's in the first 30 minutes of the debate, but you've used your 10 minutes, you're done. Your mic's cut off. You don't get to come back in and say anything until the closing one minute. And that way, the time is equally distributed. The voters get a chance to really hear from all of these candidates and determine, do any of these guys really deserve more attention than I've been giving them? And you don't have a moderator. The questions aren't posed by a network anchor. The questions are posed by the candidates themselves. It's their debate. They're the ones running for office. If they wish to ask a question of another candidate, they can do that. Um, But they control the topics. And why shouldn't they? They're the ones running for president. Why should we elect uh, news people, uh, journalists and, and TV personalities, determine even what the topics and questions are? I say we chunk the whole thing and start from scratch and and actually have a Republican debate and not a television game show. Yeah, I, 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 this is, I, I, there's a different strategy for a general election where you're trying to reach a broad audience. Sure, that's different. In the primary, I agree with you, the whole goal is to inform voters that are voting in Republican primaries and caucuses about issues that they care about, not what a TV anchor cares about, to your point, that's going to give them ratings. And I don't know why this is so hard to get across. It's, it's, they all nod. Uh, and then they'll say, okay, but let's talk about CNN next. You know, and you're like, if you think that CNN is going to give us a fair or NBC, and I, I'm telling you, there's a reason they haven't announced the Alabama debate partner because they've run out of Fox entities to have it with. No knock against Fox that, I mean, at some point it's like Fox Nation's Nation is gonna host a debate because they've run out and CNN and NBC are next on the list. And that to me is an absolute political malpractice on the part of the party. Couldn't agree more. And one of the reasons they claim is that, well, we don't have the resources for the staging. Let me tell you something, Sean, the, the American Republican voter they don't care about the staging. And secondly, don't tell me we couldn't get sponsors, right. corporate people that would spend plenty of money to cover the production. But simply you would say, if you want to do it, and by the way, everyone can run the debate. It won't be limited to one network. Feed. Everyone will have right. access to it. You can run it online. You can do C-SPAN, PBS. You can have every network, CNN, NBC, Fox, Newsmax. Everybody gets to run it. But here's the deal. You don't control it. Right. You run the debate as it happens. And the Republicans are running the debate because it is their debate. It is not the domain of a television network. So I, I, you and I are simpatico on this thing. I think it's a travesty what, what's happening. I want to ask you, though, about the ultimate goal, which is winning delegates. And the first prize is Iowa, January 15th. You won Iowa. 
one, how important is it in the overall scheme of accumulating delegates and ultimately becoming the nominee? And number two is, you know, I was out there at the state fair. I think Donald Trump's game plan and ground game from 2015 to now is vastly increased. But I was also impressed with what the DeSantis team has done. I know Nikki Haley's been made some inroads, Vivek's made some inroads. It, it seems to me uh, that, you know, this is really a, a test of organizing. So based on your experience and your success, what sort of advice do you have for how we interpret Iowa and what should the candidates be focused on? It is important to win Iowa. And if you don't win Iowa, you need to win New Hampshire or South Carolina. If you win all three, uh, you're virtually unstoppable. That's just the way it plays. Right. To win Iowa, it's really like running for governor of Iowa. And it's a ground game. And it's a one-on-one -on -one game. It's not about um, really even big polling, big events. It's about connecting to people one-on-one -on -one in diners and in grocery stores and at small town home parties. And it's developing an organization of people who are willing to go out on a very cold, snowy night <laughs> in January or February and drive on ice to go to a school cafeteria and be there for three or four hours and stand up in front of their neighbors and say, I'm going to vote for Mike Huckabee instead of Mitt Romney or whoever else is on the ballot. And if, you know, you're asking a lot of people, they don't just go and pop a vote in and they're out five minutes later. They're going to be there a while. Yeah. They may have to vote two or three times that night if their first person uh, that they choose doesn't make it to the second ballot. Most people don't understand how the caucuses work. But when I won the caucuses, it transformed the trajectory of my race in uh, 2008. I went on to win most of the Super uh, Tuesday states, West Virginia and several other states prior to that. And it put me in contention in South Carolina, where I wasn't as strong before, but uh, it came down to basically Charleston. John McCain barely beat me there. And had he not done so, and I won South Carolina, McCain had said he was going to drop out of the race because he was out of money. If I'd have won both Iowa and South Carolina, I would have been sitting pretty uh, and, and almost, I'm not going to say I was be unstoppable, but I would have been in a very different place. Not winning in, with him winning New Hampshire and South Carolina, the media kind of decided that it was over, even though it really wasn't. But um, it did eliminate the other candidates. Mitt Romney was done. Rudy Giuliani never got started. He was waiting in Florida for everybody to get there. And by the time we did, uh, nobody remembered that he was running because he didn't <laughs> play the first three states. So that's what happens. You have to win early in at least one, if not two of the early states, or you're not going to go anywhere. I mean, Joe Biden was saved solely by James Clyburn in South Carolina. He got trounced in Iowa, trounced in New Hampshire. He got resurrected in South Carolina. And that's the only reason he won. If he'd lost there, he would have been uh, obliterated and Bernie Sanders would have been their nominee. So I, I've always said, with respect to the cycle of Trump wins Iowa and those four early states, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina, it's over. Do you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. I think if he wins Iowa, it may be over. But if he wins Iowa and places well, first or second in New Hampshire, uh, he'll be very strong in South Carolina, even with Nikki Haley on the, the ballot. Yeah. He'll still be very strong there because Henry McMaster, the governor, is a strong uh, Trump ally. And quite frankly, 
the Trump support in uh, South Carolina is just, I mean, it's strong as a garlic factory. So before I let you go, um, two things. One, uh, let me ask you about um, how your daughter's doing as governor. I see great progress coming out of there of Arkansas. She's been a champion on education and so many other issues. Um, how is it as a father versus a former governor? Because you, you have to be able to look at this both as a political person and saying, wow, I can't believe she did that, or wow, that was unbelievable. I could have never done that. And then you've also got to be looking at it as a very proud dad. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's so many things she's gotten done that I could not have done in part because of the political landscape. It was so overwhelmingly Democrat when I was governor. It's so overwhelmingly Republican that she is. But I'm very proud of her for taking bold positions, particularly on school choice, tax cuts, things that she's getting done with overwhelming majorities. Um, so, yeah, it's it's fun to watch. Yeah. Now, there are times that I'd like to pick up the phone and say, hey, let me give you some advice. <laughs> But I, I don't. And the reason I don't is because I've told her I'm not going to inject myself into her business and try to be the shadow governor. If she needs me, if she has need of counsel, I'll be available. But I'm not going to try to uh, uh, initiate that conversation and throw myself into what she's doing because she got elected this time, not me. And it's up to her to, uh, you know, to grab the steering wheel and yeah. Drive, the, drive the boat. Well, she's doing a great job. I want to ask you one last question before you go. I thank you for uh, how generous you've been with your time. But I obviously watching Huckabee on Saturdays is a, is a must uh, for everybody on TBN. Um, you made a comment a couple of weeks ago. The left lost their minds. And you said the election, the next election will be decided by bullets, not ballots. And oh, my God. First of all, <laughs> I watch your show every week. I it was funny because you. I then watched the media reaction. I'm like, I don't think you, I think you guys literally were looking for a fight. What, what did you mean by that? Because I guess no one probably wanted to ask you what you actually meant. Yeah, it was very simple because the context of it was, I mentioned that the weaponization of the government agencies, particularly the DOJ and the FBI, and the use of the police power by the sitting political uh, figure of president to turn those police powers against his political opponent is the stuff of third world banana republic dictatorial uh, tin pot dictatorships. Here was my point, that if this continues, there won't be a point of having an election because the next step in every dictatorship is that once you criminalize your political opponents and you marginalize them and you exile them, uh, then it, you, you don't even need to pretend to have elections anymore. Right. You just say, this is the way it is, and you do it at the end of a gun. Yeah, and these they guys are the exact opposite of what I meant. Right. What, said, I said that if Trump doesn't win, we'll be going at it by bullets. I said, nope, they, they missed it. What I'm saying is, very clearly, this current regime, you know, Donald Trump could have prosecuted Hillary Clinton. He never did. He could have, and people forget this. Yes, but he didn't use his DOJ that way. He kept it clean. He kept it above board. The Biden administration, as did the Obama administration, they ignore the law, the constitutional concepts of presumption of innocence and due process. And uh, this is what I worry about, is that if we don't inject ourselves in an election to stop this abuse of power, then we will live under a dictatorship. Yeah. That's why they're trying to remove him from the ballot. I, I get your point. I mean, that's that's what I mean. I got your point. 
And I think this is what they're trying to do is to say, we'll just, I mean, this is what this whole 14th Amendment discussion is. We'll just take them off the yeah. ballot now. We don't even need a race. We're just going to crown Joe for a second term. Governor, uh, always love our conversations. Thank you for your time and your insight. Thanks, Sean. Great to talk to you. And I always uh, enjoy being with you. Thank you. Well, I really enjoyed that conversation with Governor Huckabee. He's been a great friend and supporter. Uh, I love his show and I love how he conducts interviews. I've always looked to him as sort of somebody who I would want to emulate. And for reasons that I hope you can see, bring such political insight. Tomorrow, uh, we've got Texas Congressman Keith Self is going to be joining us. What did we learn from that day? 9-11. And what does Congressman Keith Self think that we're doing to keep our nation safe now? He's obviously an expert on the border and national security. And I want to talk about how we can remember and never forget 9-11 and yet have such an open border. Um, Speaking of security, though, I want to tell you about a great conversation we're going to have later in the week on Friday with Tim Ballard. He's the CEO of Operation Underground Railroad. He is the star of that movie, Sound of Freedom. He's going to be joining us here talking about the work that he's doing, the success of the movie in independent media. I'm really looking forward to that discussion. Anyway, I hope you have a great Tuesday. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you right back here tomorrow on The Sean Spicer Show. <music>